Peter. Hi, Mike. I'm so tired. Why are you so tired, Mike? My brain. It feels like it's melted and then somebody stuck it in a microwave, boiled it, and then put it in the freezer and froze it, and then stuck it out in the desert heat and let it thaw and soak into the ground. And then somebody stirred that up into a mud pie and put it back together and stuck a little candle in it and lit the candle on fire. And the candle melted into the mud cake of my brain. And that is the state that it's in right now. What a complicated journey has taken. Yes. You have no idea. Actually, <laughs> I, actually, you have an idea. I, have exa- I know exactly what you're talking about. So for those of you who are listening and wondering what's going on, it's the final days before my thesis is due. My thesis for my doctor of for my doctorate of philosophy. Doctor of philosophy. Doctor of philosophy. Doctorate. It's, it's doctorate. Which one is it, Peter? <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> it's the doctorate of philosophy. In Wait. planetary science. Actually, I'm not sure. That makes me feel so much better, actually. <laughs> um, I have to turn in this giant manuscript to my thesis committee, comprised of five Caltech professors, as well as the thesis proofreader, whoever he or she is. They read my thesis. They give me comments, and then I incorporate them. Anyway, it's due in just a few days. And I've been writing like crazy, trying to get all my thoughts down in a coherent manner, which is actually the hardest part, because we've been thinking these thoughts for the past six years or so, right? Yep. But how do you put them down on paper in a way that like would make sense to somebody who hasn't been thinking these thoughts for the past six years over and over and over again, and who just reads them linearly? That is like what I struggled with so much today is like trying to explain the theory for the origin of life that I've been basing a lot of my work on in a linear fashion. I it was so difficult to do. Really? Why? Well, it's because when you try to tell this story, right, you try to put it into this big picture context of what a planet is and how a planet works and also how life is and how life works. But then there's also all these little tiny details that set the setting for the origin of life apart from other places. So the setting that I'm talking about are these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Mike, what's a hydrothermal vent? Well, a hydrothermal vent could be several different things. And so This is what I'm saying, is that like when I want to explain the particular of this kind of hydrothermal vent versus the other kinds of interesting, possibly prebiotic environments on the early Earth, that's like a story. And then there's that story about how life works and why we think the beginning of life was a certain way based on how we see life working today. And then there's the planetary perspective of how 
planets work and how that could lead to the creation of organic molecules that eventually would become life. And it's like these interweaving stories. And I was like, how, how do you tell that story? Where do you begin? And maybe it's a reflection of the fact that there isn't a story, actually. Life is just a result of the way that the universe works, and we are trying to impose a story on it because it's interesting to us to try to tell an origin story about who we are and where we came from. But really, the universe doesn't care. It just made a bunch of Let's say that. <laughs> and life whoa, whoa, is whoa, one whoa, of them. Whoa, we'll leave that out. We'll leave, leave that out. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what I'm struggling with. It's, it's very existential sort of thing because, like, you think you're being so intelligent by researching all of these things and trying to place them in a story. And then when you finally do, you're just like, I don't know, like, maybe this story makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's completely false. That's like a real worry that I have because in the origin of life field, there are a lot of different stories that lead to what we see and know as life today. And there's almost no way to prove any of them correct or to disprove any of them and say, now we know it's not this one. And so... There are a lot of ideas out there and a lot of good ideas in the sense that they do contain very logical steps that are rooted in reality. And yet there's this element of magic to each of them. And the harder I think about the particular origin of life scenario that I'm working on, I start to see these elements of magic that we haven't yet figured out in a really scientifically rigorous way and that could just completely throw everything out the window right because if one step in this story doesn't work it doesn't produce life it's almost like Lorca's plan <laughs> to to return to his universe and to stage a coup that finishes the job of killing emperor Giorgio right he gets stranded in some alternate universe and decides that he is going to pretend to be the Lorca of, of that universe, put together a crew that will eventually be able to get him enough data with the technology that he has on the Discovery to hop back into his universe. And then from there, he's going to reassemble his old compatriots and they're going to take down the empress there's just like so many different steps and so many variables and so many things that could go wrong if any one of them went wrong it would have not worked also this is the beauty of of scientific theories right so when i look at Lorca's actions it's very clear that even though he had a goal he might not have had an overall plan i think he was looking for opportunities to make his goal happen so if he saw like that perhaps what is a good way to defeat the klingon flagship but also get more information about the spore drive well let's just get stamets to jump a gazillion times right so in almost the same way i feel like this origin of life story is similar like you said lots of it seem like magic and the big reason is, of course, this happened only once, as far as we know, and only once in the entirety of the universe, since we haven't found life elsewhere. And so 
how that happened has a lot of possibilities. A lot of things could have happened, and so even though certainly you can propose a chain of events that led to life as we know it, if one part of that chain fails, that's not the end of that entire chain. You can try to figure out how that chain can be mended. Such as the beauty of science that when part of a hypothesis is disproven. It's disproven. It has to be put away because it's not true. But it could still be fixed slightly by using other ideas, and that maybe feels like you're just making things up as you go along. But the laws of physics essentially ensures that there's only so much you can do and still have the theory make sense. So I think it's fine. I think. Even if parts of it wrong, and I'm pretty sure parts of it are, since we don't know really what happened, the overall story doesn't need to be all wrong. Well, thank you for that, Peter. That's what you're here for, actually, is、okay. to is to help me get through the next few weeks, right? So I defend my thesis on May 31st. That's the oral presentation that I'll give, and then the oral exam. Behind closed doors. After that,、mm-hmm. and you've gone through this. Yep. In fact, you had a very special kind of thesis defense, if I recall. Peter, what day did you defend your thesis on? I defended on September eighth, twenty sixteen, exactly fifty years after the premiere of Star Trek. And how did that? Coincidence factor into your eventual decision for how you presented your thesis. Well, I didn't actually remember that that was a very important date until I talked to your host, Mike Wong. That day just came up because it was convenient for everyone involved. But when I told Mike that date, he realized, wait, isn't that a very special date? And so when we realized what it was, we thought, "Well, there's no way I'm ever going to change this date for anything." And clearly, I have to mark the occasion. So, I did a Star Trek thesis defense where I began by essentially scrapping my thesis topic and instead talking about the first episode of Star Trek to premiere on television on that date 50 years ago, where no man has gone before. It was great. I spent a good two, three minutes of my defense time talking about the episode, describing it in exquisite detail, and then moving on to the next episode before going back to my actual thesis topic. So that was fun, and throughout the defense, I had lots of scene transitions showing an Enterprise flying to the different planets I was talking about, and eventually out of the solar system into. The exciting world of exoplanets before returning back home for acknowledgments, which is the tradition around here. That's exactly how I remember it too. You know, I purposely didn't ask Peter to spoil any of his thesis defense for me beforehand, so I didn't know just how much Star Trek you were going to put into your thesis defense. Right. So this is a public seminar that you give. To the entire world. In fact, your defense was live streamed, right? It was live streamed、uh, on Twitter. And Peter is going to help me live stream my defense 
1.30 p.m. Pacific time, May 31st. But we'll get to the details of that later. Yep. So, right, a thesis defense is this public thing that you give to the entire world. And it's a really special kind of seminar. You can put a lot more of yourself into it, I feel, than most other occasions to give a scientific talk. And it actually surprised me how much Star Trek you put in to your defense. <laughs> it really did, especially the way you started, where it was basically a Star Trek talk. Yes. It was totally just about Star Trek for the first couple of minutes. Yes. And I didn't think that you would actually pull that because, I mean, your, your thesis committee, the professors and the audience, people who have no idea what Star Trek is are there to hear about your science and yet you still talk about <laughs> star trek without uh without without any scientific context and then you finally weaved the two together very magically but that was that was so hilarious and i still remember those scene transitions where you had these wonderful animations in your slides of the enterprise going to the places where you were studying i had a dream I've, I've, been, I've been dreaming about my thesis defense for a while now it's waking me up in the middle of the night it's actually no. not very good but every once in a while the dream is worth it and so i had this one dream where if you've ever been to disneyland they have this ride called star tours <laughs> Star Tours is a Star Wars themed ride, so please excuse this Star Wars <gasps> interruption. Blasphemy. <laughs> but um, but basically, it's a, a motion simulator where there's um, a movie screen in front of you in this box that is decorated like a space shuttle, and the box is on hydraulics, so it moves around as the screen takes you to different worlds that you visit. And in my dream, the very familiar seminar room that we always have our thesis defenses in and, and weekly seminars in turned into a spaceship. And the projector screen became a view screen, just like on Star Trek. And I was like almost aware of this, that it wasn't really a spaceship, that the whole thing had basically just turned into a Star Tours setup. So the entire room was on hydraulics and we were going where no thesis defense had gone before, similar to how you <laughs> took everybody on the Starship Enterprise to great new places in your defense. In my six-year mission. In your six-year mission, Captain Gal. <laughs> but there may have been, you know, alternate dimensions and space battles and things that we had to overcome in order to study the places in my dream oh my goodness uh, that so was a wild one that's the beauty of uh, a thesis defense at least at caltech when you defend your thesis here it's essentially assumed that you will pass and you usually do it when you already know what you will do after you defend in in, in terms of perhaps a job somewhere either in academia or outside in industry so there's basically no way you can lose which means of course this is once in a lifetime i will subject my audience star trek fans or not to as much star trek as i can possibly present <laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun and my work is a bit scattered um they all essentially deal with aerosols, clouds, hazes, and planetary atmospheres. But the fact that I work on 
topics related to various different planets means that it's hard to stitch them together. And for every single planet, the aerosols there will play perhaps a different role or the way I investigate them are certainly different. So what better way to connect them than with Star Trek? Because it's very hard to do it with anything else. Well, anything else that's, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, that was a thesis defense to remember. But what I'm really worried about is what happens after the public defense. Mm. So the public defense is the easy part almost in that you know exactly what you're going to say. You're not really going to get interrupted. And the people who are asking you questions at the end have not read the details of your actual work. But then the public goes away. You go into the doom room, as we like to call it. You sit across from a panel of professors who are familiar with your work to some extent, some more intimately familiar than others, for about an hour to an hour and a half, maybe, sometimes up to two hours if something goes terribly right or terribly wrong, I don't know. But nobody knows what goes on in that room before you actually get there. But I have a friend who has been through it all. And Peter, can you tell me what actually happens in that room so that I can be prepared, please? <laughs> well, I don't actually remember anything, so... This is, everybody, uh, do they... Okay, tell me at least this. Tell me at least this. Do they tell you not to tell anybody what happens? Because literally everybody who comes out of that room has nothing to say about the past hour to hour and a half. You know, we just get so traumatized. Um, no, actually what happens is I remember everything up until the end where they shake your hand and declare that you're a doctor. And there's some magic in that that just erases all of your memories. <laughs> okay, okay, no, I'll be serious. Uh, no, I remember. It's certainly different than the event that takes place previously in that room in our grad life, which is our qualifying exam. The qualifying exam is extremely stressful and extremely difficult and all around an adrenaline rush that goes on for three hours. There, their goal is to test you on your knowledge, knowledge that they likely know already very, very well. A thesis defense in the Doom Room is very different. All of the professors agree that you should have your PhD. Otherwise, as your committee, they would not have let you defend. It's my belief that your committee, who gives you good advice or as much advice as they can on your thesis topic, have an idea of what you're doing and how well you're doing it. And so when they sign off on your thesis defense date, they know deep down that you are ready. Even if you may feel that you're not ready or you may not know everything there is to know about your topic, that's okay because you know a lot already, first of all. And also, they must be confident that you have developed the tools to continue learning and continuing down that path. So what actually happens in the room? Well, first of all, the atmosphere is a lot more jovial. They're very friendly. Even if you feel that you may not know everything about your topic, chances are you know more than all of them about this particular topic. 
they would in general maybe ask you some clarification questions but more often than not they will ask you questions out of their own curiosity because like i said they may not know everything there is to know about this topic and they most likely know much less than you about it so in my thesis defense certainly there were times where they pointed out some assumptions in my thesis that were not quite right and those were learning experiences and that's fine and i didn't fail the thesis defense because of those little issues a lot of times they asked about outstanding questions in the field that i am now a doctor of philosophy on and which they didn't have any answers and they are very curious whether i had any answers or i had any ideas about how to solve them and a lot of times a lot of these question and answer periods in the thesis defense it becomes a brainstorming session it's really it's really exciting because they will ask you a question and then you get really excited because you have had ideas about it and then you go to the board and start randomly drawing plots with no axis labels <laughs> and they uh ask you about the axis labels and then you add them and then you <laughs> say oh because oh you know i have this idea about this and this and it's really exciting and i think i want to do it and then they maybe give you suggestions and really it becomes a conversation where everyone gets super excited about exciting science that sounds a lot better than the qualifying exam oh yeah you know the qualifying exam also could be stated in similar words but the end result is that you feel terrible about yourself because they ask you questions they probe your knowledge up to the boundaries of your knowledge and they always push you to that extent they will not stop asking questions they will not relent until they find where that edge of your knowledge is and so therefore every single line of questioning always ends in i feel like I said that word again. Believe that. You're going to believe that. Don't worry. It always ends that way. It always ends in in disappointment on your part because, I mean, you're being examined by very smart people who you look up to and respect, and you don't want to say, I don't know, to any answer. And yet, you have to at some point. Right. Um, and I feel like what you're describing is that same action but with a different mindset. Yes. So in a thesis defense, when you say, I don't know, it's not because they asked you a really hard question and you just happen to not read a paper or book about that. You don't know because nobody knows. You are at the edge of knowledge for this particular question, for this particular topic. That's what you are. A good committee and a good advisor should give you opportunities and projects such that at the end of your PhD, you know about it more than anyone else. And by it, I mean the entire topic. It could be related to something that someone else know more about. That's okay. But you will have placed it in a slightly or maybe very different context. So, for example, you study origin of life and have extended it to a couple of planets. Okay. Well, some of your co-authors or advisors may know a lot about origin of life on Earth, but since you have now studied Mars processes that may be related to habitability, that person would not know anything about it. So there, you would know more than them. And so really, the PhD is about getting your own little niche in science that you can claim as your own, that really no one else can supersede you. I just have to ask, 
did any of them remark on the Star Trekiness of your presentation behind closed doors? No. <laughs> no. Alas. None of them even. Wait, who did you have on your committee? I had uh, Dave, Jeff, Yuck, and Heather. I think Heather or Jeff would be the most likely candidates to actually mention. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I clearly know more Star Trek, so maybe they just. They couldn't even try to ask me questions about it. <laughs> I would just be like, next question. Or that was a stupid question. Let's move on. You know, pushing the boundaries of knowledge and exploring the unknown really reminds me of the thing that Q said to Picard at the end of All Good Things, mm. right? Yeah. Do my best John DeLance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Q says to Picard, you just don't get it, do you, Jean-Luc? The trial never ends. We wanted to see if you had the ability to expand your mind and your horizons. And for one brief moment, you did. Captain Picard says, when I realized the paradox. No, no. When I realized the paradox. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> realize the paradox <laughs> do it again okay. do it again when i realized the paradox oh that's pretty good that's really good really yeah okay and then q says exactly for that one fraction of a second you were open to options you had never considered that is the exploration that awaits you not mapping stars and studying nebulae but charting the unknown possibilities of existence. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, anyhow, so that was pretty cool. I almost think that like Q is like Picard's thesis advisor. You know, I remembered bits of that quote, but now that you read the whole thing, I think it's so incredibly applicable. <laughs> For one brief moment... Your thesis defense, <laughs> and hopefully the many papers that you write up to that point, you've, re you've uncovered unknown knowledge that no one in the history of the human species has ever realized. It's true, right? Or they've realized and it's been lost for millennia. But at least in our current state, current knowledge base, no one else in the world know these things or have thought about these things until you put your published results out there. But the thing that really worries me is what Q says to Picard in that whatever it was room, that throne room, but really was a World War III, like, courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> he says to Picard, the trial never ends. The trial and I'm never... just like, oh, no. <laughs> The trial never ends. It's true. I mean, the PhD really is just the beginning. After six seasons, I mean years, even though it feels like you're at your series finale, it really is just the beginning that could lead to infinite numbers of movies. <laughs> <laughs> or just four movies. But, but, <laughs> but right, the trial never ends because our quest to understand the universe if the universe is infinite our quest would also be infinite 
something that I guess we haven't really discussed is grad school is not just about preparing you for science and pursuit of science and how to pursue science, but also about six years of your life that just so happens to take place during an age where things may be changing in your life. And if you are very lucky, you will be surrounded by just the best people, which I was and still am. And there's so many trials and tribulations through grad school. And the only way you make it is with your crew. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> At least you don't have to worry about Klingon attacks. So, Peter, before we go, let's tell people how they can watch my thesis defense if they wish. Right. So what will happen is on the day, I will put my phone at the back of the room where Mike will defend, and I will live stream it. So it seems the easiest way to do it is via Twitter. Okay. So I will attempt to live stream it on my Twitter account, at PlanetaryGao, and hopefully other people will retweet it. Mike will probably retweet it if he's not freaking out at the time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I won't make any promises, (laughs) but I will try to retweet it. Okay. Yes, but you should definitely follow Peter, at PlanetaryGao, and... See for yourself the wonders of all of his tweets. We, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> we will definitely we will test it out uh, beforehand, clearly, and hopefully it works on the day. And you'll get to see Mike in his element, telling everyone about his exciting science, but also about his personal journey through grad school. Watch out, May thirty first, one thirty p.m. Pacific time. That's when it all goes down. And I look forward to talking to you all after my defense. See you out there, everyone.